Our text for today comes from the Gospel of Matthew and from the Sermon on the Mount. And the hymn that we sang the beginning of worship is from the Beatitudes that many of you memorized as third graders here at Kenilworth Indian Church, part of the Sermon on the Mount also. So we are uh, continuing along through the Sermon on the Mount. Surely this won't be the first time you've heard this text. It contains these nuggets of wisdom that are well known in our culture. Turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, love your enemy. It's the stuff that caused Gandhi to say, an eye for an eye for an eye makes the whole world go blind. It's a call not to violence, but to peace. Yet, the wisdom being well known or even widely quoted doesn't mean that we are any more apt to actually live by it. It's a challenging message for a challenging time. So listen again to this text with open ears and an open heart wondering what challenge God might be welcoming you into today. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and after he sat down, he said to his disciples, You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. If anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. And Jesus said, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For God makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers and your sisters, what more are you doing than others do? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let us pray. Holy God, May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In confirmation class right now, we are in what you might call the faith statement season. Our freshmen are asked to write a faith statement that one outlines the story of our common faith in their own words, asks them how they see or know or talk about God in their own lives, and asks them asks how they might hope to live differently because of their faith in God. 
Now, I'm pretty sure that all of us should be doing this every year, all of us, you included, not just because it's a challenge, but because it's important. Writing a faith statement offers us a chance to track how our understanding of God changes and matures and shifts and grows from year to year. And also, for some of us, it's true that we really don't know what we think or believe about something until we are challenged to write it down or to teach it to someone else. So writing a faith statement brings clarity and it offers aha moments in the midst of our faith journeys. Now, for now, I'm not asking all of you to write a faith statement every year, though maybe we should. Um, so for the time being, our freshmen are holding up their end of the bargain and they are doing an awesome job. I see some of you out there. You've done a great job this year of uh, writing your faith statements, and as a pastor, meeting with them one-on-one -on -one individually to talk about their faith statements is one of the greatest gifts of the whole year. So one of the things that we're fairly explicit about in this process is that doubt is allowed. And maybe that is a little bit of a shock, maybe that surprises you because it's a faith statement and not a doubt statement, but we find there's something authentic and freeing about welcoming doubt. Making room for doubt acknowledges the cycles of faith and doubt that we experience throughout our lives. And it advocates for the deepening of faith that emerges out of those seasons of doubt. Doubt is part of our Christian tradition. It is written into scripture. It's part of the Psalms. It's part of the Gospels. And it's part of the most profound theological tomes that have survived the centuries. Doubt is part of our faith. We experience uncertainty or hesitation or suspicion. We acknowledge confusion and unease and apprehension. We confess our skepticism or distrust or cynicism about faith. And when we do that, it offers us one more chance to ask, well, then, what do I believe? Admittedly, we don't ask our faith statements to have any lazy doubt. Lazy doubt, we, we don't we cut it all out. Lazy doubt is that unexamined doubt that has a tendency to be cranky or impolite or disrespectful. Instead, I'm interested in the thoughtful, engaged kind of doubt that solicits the wisdom of uncertainty. And now that I've read more than 200 faith statements at Kenilworth Union Church, I, and all of them are unique, don't get me wrong, there are three common threads that weave together the statements of doubt. One is the question of if science and faith are at odds with one another. The second is the question of why there is suffering in God's world. And the third is the question of why Christians have done violence in Jesus' name. Now, there's a, a fourth kind of doubt that lingers under the surface as well, one that kind of has to do with high expectations, either of ourselves or of God. This fourth kind of doubt is 
about experiencing God, or rather of not having experienced God in some profound way or in what one might consider enough of a profound way. This fourth kind of doubt is rooted maybe in showy Hollywood depictions of God speaking in audible voices over microphones or with literal signs along the road. Or maybe this fourth kind of doubt is rooted in our expectation or hope that God might come to us with fireworks or thunderstorms or obvious signs or self-evident miracles. Or maybe this fourth kind of doubt is rooted in a busy culture, a culture that leaves very little room for silence or meditation, where God's whispers or still small voice might be overlooked or ignored or discounted. I love all of these kinds of doubts that are expressed in the faith statements. Each kind of doubt really deserves its own sermon series, its own year-long study, its own radio program, its own endowed chair at the Divinity School. And surely I'm missing some forms of doubt that linger around the edges, named or unnamed. But today, our text from Matthew highlights one of these tender, important doubts. Our text from Matthew begs the question, why have Christians done violence in Jesus' name? Why have Christians done violence in Jesus' name when Jesus says, turn the other cheek? Why have Christians done violence in Jesus' name when Jesus says, not just love your neighbor, but love your enemy? Why have Christians done violence in Jesus' name when Jesus says, don't react violently? Why crusades, our confirmants ask? Why holy wars? Why manifest destiny? Why lynchings or cross burnings or Waco, Texas or Jim Jones? A friend of mine went to Cape Coast Castle in Ghana. Maybe you've been there. He talked passionately about his experience there in the height of the slave trade. Cape Coast Castle was a gathering place for slave traders seeking to buy slaves. Upstairs was a place for slave traders to do business and make deals and negotiate. And downstairs were dark, damp stone holding cells, often crammed full of slaves ready to be loaded into ships and made and made ready for the long voyage, first maybe to Liverpool, where so many trade ships came to port, and then across the ocean to the New World. And on the top floor of Cape Coast Castle in Ghana is a church. A small, bright chapel used by slave traders on Sunday mornings. My friend said that if you were to sing a hymn in this chapel on the top floor, you could hear the singing down below in those dark, damp stone holding cells. My friend could hardly stomach standing in that place, imagining people worshiping God, who says, turn the other cheek and love not just your neighbors, but your enemies. How could these Christians profess Christ on Sunday morning, 
and on Monday morning, ship out with hundreds of slaves crowded into the hall. I think we asked the same question about churches in Nazi Germany that supported the Nazi regime and churches in South Africa that supported apartheid or the streams of Christian identity in the United States that supported cross-burning or lynching. Why have Christians done violence in Jesus' name? Our confirmands ask. Jesus says, you have heard it said. He says it, you have heard it said. And he's, he's not just referring to some things that, some sayings that were popular at the time that were floating around in the cultural ether, that were in the memes on the internet. He's referring to things that are written in our sacred texts. That phrase, an eye for an eye, sound in Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. It's, it's not hidden. It's not some obscure phrase. It's part of our biblical legal code. So maybe part of the answer, at least, to the question of why Christians have done violence in Jesus' name has something to do with the Bible playing host to violent ways of life. Now, as a, as a side note that might interest you, our mission trip this year to Belize um, has a theme of peace and violence. And so between now and the mission trip, um, and on the mission trip, we are exploring this very thing. Not just peace and violence in Belize, or peace and violence here at home, or peace and violence in our lives, or in our communities, or in Chicago, or the nation of the world, but also this question of how God might call us to peace, and what scripture texts might have been used to justify violent acts in Jesus' name, and how do we listen for God in the midst of Scripture? And I'm not promising you that we figure it all out. We will spend some time on this, but all I ask is that you inquire. Ask us in a few months if we at least feel just a little bit more wise, a little bit more prepared to wonder about such things. In Matthew, Jesus offers a new interpretation of, this, of these violent texts. Jesus says, You have heard it said, an eye for an eye. But I say unto you, do not react violently to the one who does evil against you. Jesus has a hermeneutic of love, a lens of love, a way by which all scripture and ethic and way of life must go through this machine called love before it can be called good. Jesus' lens of love is what we affirm here at Kenilworth Union Church. It's what we mean when we sing, Jesus loves me, at an early age. And it's what we mean when we teach our children the lullaby, God loves me so. God's love for us, God's God's love for us, not our love for God, God's love for us helps us to, uh, to stand up, to have courage, to stand against those who might do violence in Jesus' name. God's love for us is what allows us to even consider the possibility of trying to live into this message from Jesus that we might love our enemies. Not that any of us can call ourselves perfect. Maybe we don't literally practice an eye for an eye, but 
maybe there are some days when we wish we could. When we, when we are hurt and we feel isolated or agonized, that we might wish that the person who had hurt us could feel just a small piece of what we feel. Maybe we wish we could turn the other cheek, but we don't. Maybe we think for a moment about going the extra mile, of going beyond what's asked of us, but we turn back again to that legalistic appeal to only have to do what the contract says and nothing more. None of us are perfect. None of us, even on our best days, live fully into this logic of love that Jesus calls us toward. None of us fully see the world through Jesus' lens of love, even when we spend a lifetime trying. But surprisingly, shockingly, this passage ends with a challenge to do just that. It says, be perfect. Be perfect just as God is perfect. Yikes, how are we going to do this? Can we? Can we be perfect? Can we even think about doing that? It's hard to love your enemy, but be perfect. It's a high, that's a high hope. Maybe some days we think we can be perfect. Maybe some days we hope we can be perfect. Some days we definitely wake up knowing that we will certainly fail at being perfect. One scholar challenged preachers to look back at the original Greek here. Sometimes looking back at the original Greek gets us off the hook a little bit. We can play uh, in the interpretive wizard a little bit and get off the hook with uh, these challenging things that Jesus says to us. But in this case, I think it offers us a way, a way towards living into this text uh, that Jesus leaves for us. It offers something realistic and kind and loving. So here's the original Greek. The original Greek word is telos. The Greek word telos implies less of moral perfection than it does of reaching one's intended outcome. Telos means goal or purpose. So a honeybee's telos is to find nectar and to return to the hive to nourish the colony, make enough honey for, to survive the winter. An apple tree's telos is to produce apples. A violin's telos is to make sound or even to make music. The bells are to, make, are to ring. The telos of the bells is to make the beautiful sounds that they make. Telos is about being what you're created to be. It's about reaching the end goal or doing the thing for which you have been made. And so an alternative translation of this final text might be, instead of be perfect, it might be, be the person and community God created you to be. Be the person and community God created you to be, just as God is the one God is supposed to be. Telos is the process of becoming. It is that lifelong hard work of living into what God created you to do. Perfection, or telos, is not some sort of here and now, do it or else kind of perfection at which we will certainly fail. 
but instead it's a lifelong transformation, which will surely have ups and downs and setbacks and successes, but which absolutely is possible. Our preschool director, Jill Witt, this week offered some preschool-sized wisdom, which, not surprisingly, is equally applicable to adults. She said, when a child is struggling to get her coat on or having trouble figuring out how to stay in line walking down the hallway, when he's not able to put the caps back on the markers or she's frustrated because she's always the last one out of the classroom because it takes her so long to zip up her coat. It is so hard. And the child finally gets frustrated enough to say, I can't, I can't do it, I just can't. Then the teacher's job is to tell the child, not yet. Help the child see that he can't do it just yet. She can't zip her coat yet. He can't get the cap back on the marker yet. She can't figure out the mystery of how to get all of those fingers into those gloves yet. One day, those things will be an easy task, hardly thought about because of years of practice. But right now, that child is living in the not yet of life. Not yet is the grace we find in telos. The perfection of telos does not call the honeybee to have all the nectar all the time. The perfection of telos does not call the violin to make sound, to make music all the time. The perfection of telos does not call the apple tree to produce fruit all the time. Instead, within telos is the gift of grace, the gift of not yet. We are not yet living into Jesus' call to love our enemies. We are not yet living into Jesus' call to turn the other cheek. But we, we hear, we hear the call, we practice We see the logic of Jesus' love. We see Christ's lens of love. And we practice loving our enemy. We don't get it right every time. But every morning, every morning, we are offered a chance to begin again. To love again. To try again. To live into the logic of love to which Jesus calls us. Be perfect, Jesus says. Be telos, Jesus says. Be the person and the community God created you to be, Jesus says. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, amen.